All right. So we're, we're heading back into our series that we're in called Hashtag Blessed. If you're just joining us, this comes out of a book by David Ferguson. There's still some copies available in the lobby um, called BLESS, an acronym for B-L-E-S-S. And we started a, about a month or so ago with B of Begin With Prayer. We, then we looked at a couple weeks, we looked at L of Listening With Care and With Curiosity. And then last week, we looked at E for eat, of the need to be sharing meals together with one another. And today, we're on the first of the two S's for serving one another. And as we talk about serving, first, today, I mean, everyone loves stories of great achievement today. We all love stories of, of great successes and, and great turnarounds. And um, in, in football, we love the, the grandiose things. So in football, we would love touchdowns and, and especially Hail Marys. That's why we loved Russell Wilson so much was you always knew he could pull something out. And in baseball, we love home runs, even better than home runs. We want to see grand slams. Now, there are probably some of you who are true fans who can enjoy a 0-0 tie and think that's exciting, but that's only the true fans. Um, and those are the ones that get excited when Mariners win. The rest of us, those are boring matches. Um, because then that's also why I guess they keep changing the rules to make the game more high-scoring and other stuff, because people know it's not as fun. We love seeing regular people make it big. We love the grandiose stories of, of radical turnarounds. This, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was listening to a, a podcast. It was fascinating called the, I think it's called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And regardless of what you think about J.K. or the Harry Potter novels, it's a fascinating story as J.K. Rowling was, um, lived in abject poverty. She's now worth over a billion dollars from all the sales, one of the most successful authors ever alive. But before those, those novels went out, she was, listen to this thing, I didn't realize this, she was in abject poverty, was living in fear of an abusive husband trying to protect her child from her husband. And all she had was this manuscript that the husband kept stealing from her that was this idea of this, you know, this poor kid that had magical powers and could, you know, do something in the world. And before she got that script written or, or, or published, she was living in fear and abject poverty of no hope and no future. And obviously, everything turns around, and it, I think it worked out pretty well for her. Or another story similar to that was Sylvester Stallone. You heard the story that when, before he got, actually got his script for Rocky that was taken and purchased, he was so poor as an actor, he literally had to sell his dog to eat. That's how things were for Sylvester Stallone before he finally sold the script for Rocky. And then he got it turned around. And, and we love stories like that, or, or stories of, of great conversion. I love being able to tell the stories of things that I've seen in all the years of the mission field, whether it be of baptizing Chinese believers in the underground church in my, bat, in, in my, in my bathtub back in, in, in Chongqing, China, or, or whether it be stories of seeing just radical healings and crazy things of, of uh, cannibals coming to Christ and, and all these ridiculous cool stuff as God moves in powerful ways and people accept Christ. And, and we love those stories and we celebrate them. And, and they're, they're fun to see of overnight conversions. Those are kind of like Watching the Mariners come from like a behind, the, behind when they're behind, and see like a grand slam that takes them behind to win a game. And, and we can get excited and passionate and go, wow, those things are awesome. Or even what we saw here on Christmas Eve is we saw so many people get baptized and accept Christ. And, and those are great to have these huge high moments where things happen in that way. But the problem is sometimes those kind of experiences, grand slams or even games like that or crazy high experiences can cause us to not appreciate the ordinary as much. Remember a while back, I took a friend to see a Mariners game, and it was an exciting game, high scoring, multiple lead changes, lots of home runs, and like, wow, baseball's amazing. Later on, they went to another game that was like a 0-1 at the end of the game, and they just told me, that is the most boring game ever, right? There was no appreciation for it. All they had was that taste of, of the excitement of one. And so, naturally, we're, we're, we're tracking these big stories, but what happens when it's not so exciting? It's easy to lose interest. It's easy to feel like it, what we do doesn't matter so much, and our lives don't look that way. A couple weeks ago, I recommended a book uh, by Mary Schaller called The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversation, and in it, she uses the example, and she compares these things to like playing, a children playing t-ball, and 
She says, have you ever watched a, a t-ball game? I don't know if you guys ever played it, but t-ball is a great sport for kids. Um, I, I guess it is a sport, but it's a, basically it's a chance for them to learn the sport of baseball and, and, and have some fun while they're doing it. And I, I bought a tee and let our kids play. And as you watch t-ball games, they're pretty fun. As you see a kid with great intensity go up to the, up to the tee, the ball's sitting there, and they get ready, and they take a, a big old swing, and they smash it. And of course, they usually hit the tee instead of the ball, and, and the ball just kind of dribbles a few feet forward. And you watch the kid just take off running with all of his heart, with, you know, spinning, looking out the ear hole of his helmet as the helmet's, you know, turned sideways. And they're, they're taking off down the line and realize it's the third baseline. They're running down. And, and meanwhile, no one cares. Everyone's just cheering, right? They're all having fun. Because they're learning. They're growing. They're taking steps forward. And it's wonderful to watch. Or we've got our kids involved, with, along with a number of families here, with, at I-9 Sports playing soccer. And it's so fun, especially watching the youngest age, the three, the three and four-year-olds as they play. Our youngest was doing this last season and Watching the three yards play, you know, mob, school, mob ball. It's not really soccer. They just run in little mobs all around trying to kick the ball. And, um, and as they play, we actually had to, like, uh, incentivize because most of the kids basically just, you know, sit around, pick flowers, do other stuff. And regularly, you'll see, like, one whole team out there and then just one kid from one team out there playing as the others are laying on the ground or talking or doing whatever. We had incentivizing it. A friend told us to give chocolate chips to a kid for every time he touches the ball with his foot. Don't, have to, don't do anything. Just touch the ball, you get a chocolate chip, or get an extra five minutes of Minecraft for every single time you, you touch the ball, right? And it gave them the motivation, and they, and they practiced doing that, and they, they stepped out. And it was, it was fun to see as they had fun, and, and their minimal efforts were rewarded. As they, as they were trying on their own, they, they're probably not going to go out to be Cristiano Ronaldo or Ken Griffey Jr. or something else, but they were, they were having fun, and, and their little efforts were rewarded in that place. And... As we learned to celebrate small things, they were able to grow and, and continue in that place. But I love that book, Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversations, asked the question, what if we applied kind of that T-ball mentality to reaching our neighbors with the gospel? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, he says, and if you even give a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. Even a cup of cold water. This is at the end of a long teaching that Jesus gives in that chapter that begins by him admonishing them to go and raise the dead and heal the sick and, and, and cast out demons and, and be willing to lay your life down for the gospel. And so, yes, raise the dead. Yes, pray for that. And at some point we'll do a series, we'll talk about those, the miraculous, and the way of reaching and, and seeing people come to Christ in those ways. And that's awesome. But he says, but even a cup of cold water and you will be rewarded as he finishes us up as he's emphasizing the significance of, of those simple steps of obedience, of caring for those who are hurting him. At that time, a cup of cold water and living in the desert was really the most basic form of hospitality as people were often parched living in that part of the world. And that's like just the, the lowest form of hospitality, the most simple thing to do by caring for somebody. I love how Schaller puts it in the book. I'm going to read a quote from that. She says, what if some simple steps helped us all get in the game. What if the little stuff counts, she asks. The little things that seemed to matter to Jesus. He, he heartily applauded the widow who gave the two tiny coins that she had to offer. He blessed and multiplied the little loaves and fish from a boy's lunch until they fed thousands of people. He said, if anyone can give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose the reward. In Jesus's view, an activity as small as giving someone a cup of cold water is so important that a reward is associated with it. In today's evangelistic economy, little things don't seem to count for much. But in reality, it's the modern-day cups of cold water, like paying attention to people, listening to them, and praying for them. 
that bring refreshment and give others a taste of Jesus' love. I love that. So often we can make it so complex in reaching neighbors and reaching the lost and loving others. We think evangelism maybe is, is reserved for the likes of Billy Grahams and, and, and crazy extroverts. But we are all called to share the love of Christ. If anyone who calls himself a child of God, we are called to share that love and the hope we have with others. And maybe there's times where God will do it in power. We meet a stranger and in one conversation, just the Spirit moves in power in their lives and, and they're overwhelmed by the Spirit and they accept Christ. And, and that's amazing when we get healed and accept Christ. And, and that's awesome. And, and that does happen every once in a while, but that's, that's usually not the norm as a missionary of, of decades on the field. I've seen a number of those things happen, but that's not the norm. That is not what is normally happens. It's the stories you hear, but they're usually few and far between. It'd be like a, a baseball player, you know, kind of being enamored with the whole idea of hitting home runs and maybe thinking that like the only way if I wanted to play a baseball player was I got to hit home runs. I got to be like Barry Bonds and, and you know, just be known for how well I can do it. I got to swing for the fences. Now, see, the other day, what, what would that say for a guy like Ozzie Smith if you grew up playing baseball or enjoying baseball? The Wizard of Oz, as they called him. In 10,000 at-bats over 19 years, he averaged just over one home run a season. And yet as a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Why? Because he focused on the fundamentals, just the little things, making the most of every opportunity. And sometimes as Christians, we can have this kind of all-or-nothing approach to Christianity, and especially of sharing our faith, that if they're not going to convert, if they're not going to accept Christ, like, why even try? And sometimes we can make assumptions and size people up really quickly as we decide, is it, is it worth putting the effort in to, to share my faith or to serve this person in some way if they're never going to respond? And if we feel that there's no chance that this person is going to respond or their demeanor doesn't seem welcoming of the action, we're just like, yeah, there's no point on that. I don't want to throw my pearls before swine or something. And, and we kind of walk away. We make assumptions that there's not even a point to engage. You know, next week as we wrap up the series, looking at sharing, we're going to look at a crazy story where Paul even shares the gospel with this crazy king who would never in a million years accept the gospel, and yet Paul still goes ahead with it. But how often for us today do we engage with people based upon the likelihood that we think it is for them to respond to the message or, or respond in some positive way? Do we prejudge who we serve and, and how we serve based upon how we think they'll respond? Maybe we think that we have a chance with a, a neighbor who's struggling with some things and been asking for help. And so that person, we think, yeah, I can serve them and there's real hope here. So I'm going to really focus on praying for and caring for this person. That's awesome. But maybe the, the confident software engineer with double PhDs and a, and a semi-genius who's arrogant and, and cocky, we think, oh, there's no point in talking to them because they're never going to listen or, or, or receive the message. Maybe we think maybe the, the stay-at-mom next door who's been wrestling a lot with health issues and other stuff. And, and yeah, I can, I can chat to her. She's someone that will be sensitive and open to this. And I can serve her and do things for her. But maybe her husband, who's a bank manager or something, that is, is always talking and never listening. You're like, yeah, there's, there's no, no point there. I'm just going to focus on, on, on the spouse. Or maybe it's an Islamic neighbor, a, a Buddhist neighbor, an atheist neighbor. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's not going to work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on the lower-hanging fruit that, that seems more susceptible or, or, or more, less resistant. But we make these assumptions and we try and, and figure out, like, what, is, what can I do in my own strength? What's likely going to happen if I do this on my own? And, but the thing is, we don't need to swing for the fences. We don't need to try and, and hit home runs 
We don't need to see conversion as the goal, and that's the definition of success. Success is simply being obedient and loving the way Christ has called us to love. And that means loving them well, serving them well, and being present and listening to them. And so today I want to look at two passages of Jesus where he talks about serving other people. And the first one is probably one of the most famous ones, and it's what we find at Jesus' final meal that he has with his disciples. We talked about it last week. And when you think about Jesus' final meal, what is the primary event that we think about at that, at that time where he's doing it? And it's what we did last week. We, we usually think about communion. And it's, it's fascinating, though, because when you read the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, they're all the communion is the central event of that final supper. But then you go to the Gospel of John... And you learn that for John, he doesn't even talk about communion. In fact, that is not, he doesn't even mention it. In fact, there's only one event that matters to John that happened at that meal. And it starts in John chapter 13. And John tells that Jesus knows his time is up. And he says this in verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and, and return to his father. He loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. So Jesus knew that the time had come. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, so, or it says, Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel around him. Now, this is the event that mattered to John at that meal. That Jesus served the disciples as a servant. Now, in that time, you may know that it was required to wash people's feet because the feet were dirty from walking in sandals in the desert and everywhere else. And it was the job of the lowliest person at the table, as the servant to do. And it's amazing that at this meal, they're already all seated, and no one thought to wash anyone's feet. Even Jesus' feet weren't washed. No one jumped up to do it. No one wanted to serve until Jesus gets up to do it himself and sets the example. And this was culturally mind-blowing for a rabbi to wash the feet of the disciples or or the people below him. But what shocks them even more is what happens afterwards. It says in verse 12, After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? And and of course, no one did. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because I am. And he says, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. First time. I've given you an example for you to follow. Do as I have done to you. Again, second time he says it. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their masters, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Third time, he tells them to do this. So three times here, Jesus tells the disciples, they now need to go and wash one another's feet. They're to follow his example and serve one another. And then John's going to spend the next four chapters just spending in in, in a time of prayer and explanation to the disciples how they're to love one another and and serve one another. And it's fascinating to me, from, from the other Gospels, We take Jesus' command to practice communion, to to remember him in the act of communion. We take that as a timeless truth for all Christians, for all time. And it's been diligently practiced by the church for 2,000 years. Any any, any Bible-believing follower of Jesus today would, would practice the act of communion and know that that's something we should do. Why? Because Jesus commanded us to do it at this Last Supper. And I'm glad we take him seriously to do that, even if we have a weird way of practicing it, moving it from something at a meal of people gathered together to being kind of a weird, somber, holy thing we do at churches with funky bread and little cups of things. We, we do our own way of remembering it, very different from what they did back then, but at least we're seeking to obey what he called us to do, right? And we take that seriously. If someone were to practice communion, you're like, there's something wrong with that person. Yet at the exact same meal, 
Before Jesus serves the food, he makes another universal, timeless command. And he doesn't speak, he doesn't, John doesn't even speak of communion. But he hammers on Jesus' command for us to sacrificially serve others in a way that requires humble, sacrificial service and love. In fact, this one he says three separate times to follow his example and serve one another. Only twice does he tell them to remember him through communion. Three times he commands them to serve one another through washing their feet. This is how Jesus lived his life. He lived his life in sacrifice to others. And over and over again, he tells us we are called to live and to love like him. And this is what Christians should be known for. I mean, far more should we be known for that than that we take communion. For humbly and serving, loving one another. Yet sometimes it seems that Oftentimes in the church that people would easily get outraged if communion were to happen in a weird way or if communion were to be stopped. But oftentimes those same people that are so hell-bent on that being done a special way are the same ones who may struggle to actually sacrificially obey Jesus' command to wash one another's feet and to serve others when it can't be reciprocated. One we take as gospel truth and take literally. The other one we kind of explain away and say, "Ah, I don't really know what Jesus meant. One we take as being this thing that we, we must obey, an ordinance of the church. The other, oh, that's something that's more of an optional practice if we, when we feel like it, when the timing's just right. And the commands were at the same meal. The command to go serve is directly commanded with even stronger emphasis than the command to take communion. So if that's the case, then who are we actually called to serve? We're called to serve one another, clearly, but also says we're called to serve our neighbors, which brings us to the second passage I want to look at, which is Jesus' kind of central command of his life that he gives multiple times. And I want to pick it up in Luke chapter 10, where uh, there is an expert in the religious law that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to be saved, to experience life for all of eternity? And Jesus asks him the question, and he says, what does the law say? And then chapter 10, verse 27, the expert religious law replies to him and says, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And the next verse, Jesus says, right, you got it. That's it. You know it. Do that. Jesus says, that's how you gain eternal life. That's how you live with me is you love God and you love one another. That's what it's all about. And the expert in religious law turns to, okay, so I get the God part, but he says, so then who is my neighbor? He asked Jesus. He's asking Jesus, Jesus, who am I supposed to be serving then? Who am I supposed to be loving? Or to use Jesus' language a little while later, you could rephrase this question of Jesus, whose feet am I supposed to be washing? And then Jesus tells this story. He replies in in verse 30, he says, Jesus replied with a story, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. So Jesus first begins by emphasizing that this Jewish man is is coming down from Jerusalem, and he's doing this to identify with this expert religious law, that this guy is just like you. He's an observant follower of of, of Judaism. He's just like you. He's identifying so this guy can get empathy for this man coming down and, and recognize him. He's relatable. Next, Jesus says, by chance, a priest, sorry, by, by chance, a priest came along. And by, by, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed on the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant then walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side of the road. 
Now, these two first examples are both Jewish leaders, so religious leaders. Again, identifying with this expert in religious law. And both, and both of them were more interested in obeying the letter of the law than actually serving and loving this person on the ground. You see, the law stated clearly that you can't be near dead bodies, and so most likely they were scared of what the body was, and they walked the other side of the street to make sure that they didn't get infected with the sin of somebody else. They didn't become impure or in some way get, in, get impacted by this situation over here. They were too pious, too holy, holding to the letter of the law rather than the heart of the law to serve and to love. I mean, if it had been a few years later, maybe these guys would have been vigilant about taking communion, but would have regularly just voided the poor and the hurting and the broken and walked around them so they could go take their communion. The letter of the law mattered more than the heart of God to those in the circumstance. Next verse says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. So now we have the hated Samaritan, and Maybe you know this, but the the Samaritans were the vile enemies of the Jews. The Jews considered them traitors. Going back 700 years when these were the people that that weren't taken away as slaves to Babylon. They were also the group of people that actually helped Israel's neighbors defeat Israel and send them off to slavery and then married off to evil nations around them and end up setting up their own temple. These were despised people. There was no one the Jews hated more than the Samaritans. And they would actually go days out of their way to walk to avoid Samaria when they'd have to walk up to the Galilee area. But notice here, it says the Samaritan here, he's supposed to be the bad guy of the story. That's how the Jewish man would understand this. But it says the Samaritan is the one who had compassion. And that's very important here because compassion in Scripture is one of the primary descriptions. It's the most common emotion used to describe Jesus or ascribe to Jesus when he's working. Compassion is the first word Jesus uses or God uses to describe himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, that he is a compassionate God. Compassion is the, re- the primary reason that's ever given in Scripture for why Jesus does what he does. It is central to the very heart of God. And he says here, it wasn't the religious leaders, it was this hated Samaritan who has compassion, who demonstrates the heart of God. And then it goes on to say, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So this despised Samaritan is the one that actually serves his enemy, the Jewish man, and cares for him and shows compassion. And he takes him and he lets him take his place on the donkey. And then he pays for his room at the end. He gives so much money that it would either be up to a few weeks, up to a few months of of payment for that room at the hotel based upon uh, historical understanding of that amount of money. And so then Jesus asks the legal expert at this point and says, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy or compassion. Then Jesus says, now you go and do the same thing. So Jesus asks, who is your neighbor? And the answer, it's the one most unlike you. The one that you would never give the time of day to. It's the one you would cross the street to avoid. It's the one you the most angry at, the most hated, the one that, that stirs outrage in your heart. And Jesus says, go serve those people. Love and serve them the way the Samaritan did his hated enemy. Serve with compassion those you hate. Serve those who would never repay your kindness. Serve those who hate you. 
And so you have to ask the question, do we have compassion on those who are different than us? At the opposite ends of whatever spectrum, politically, theologically, anything, worldview, culturally. Last week we spoke about the circle of empathy. How it's very natural for us to take the, to allocate, the, the, the psychologists talk about, we allocate our empathy towards those that are inside our circles of empathy. We, we take it from those who are outside and we, we put it on those who are within this circle of empathy near us. But Jesus is adamant that we must have compassion on those who are outsiders. Of those we don't naturally hang out with. Of those who don't normally invite us to dinner. But those that we would move to the other side of the road to avoid. So again, do we have compassion on those who believe differently than us? Who live differently than us? Who sin differently than us? Hold opposing politics and worldviews. For those whose sins we would find abhorrent and vile, do we have compassion on those? You know, it's so easy today to get caught up in the culture wars that are going on. And we can view it almost like it's our job to defeat those people out there. We have to win, which means they have to lose. And rather than compassion, our hearts can easily get filled with anger and judgment towards those who are different than us. But the problem is it's really hard to serve and wash the feet of people we hate. It's really hard to serve and listen well and, and care for people while we're judging them and angry at them. But who are we supposed to serve? Well, according to Jesus, it's who are the people you're most angry at? Who are the people that you want nothing to do with? That's who Jesus is telling us we're supposed to serve. That's your neighbor. I mean, do, some of us, we, it's easy to spend hours and hours reading news and watching social, reading social media posts or maybe watching videos and each of us getting more and more outraged of how right we are and how wrong the other people out there are. And it's causing us to, you know, come even more distance from people who are out there. And yes, there is, it's good to have a righteous anger against sin in the world, but we cannot let it harden our hearts. Our hearts must increasingly be filled with compassion for those who are furthest from God. If, we're, if what we're reading and what we're watching is causing our hearts to actually get more hardened towards the people who are different than us, that believe different, act different, view things differently than us, we have to stop. If our hearts are not building towards greater compassion to those who are outsiders and radically different than us, we have to stop what we're doing. That is not the heart of God. It is not wrong to, to fight for good causes and to desire justice and righteousness, but our heart must increasingly grow in compassion for those who are at the far end of the spectrum from us. And, and maybe we don't struggle with judgment or anger towards people. But instead of compassion, maybe instead we, we live out of fear or maybe apathy or just avoidance of those who are different. Maybe we try to create a Christian bubble and just leave the world out there far, far away so that we don't get impacted by it. As Christians, it's easy to develop that kind of bunker mentality where we just live in avoidance and fear of the world and just try to you know, keep it out there and stay away instead of developing a heart of compassion to serve and love. We can become like the priests and just move to the other side of the road and say, I'm not angry, I'm not judging, I just want no part of that and we just avoid it and stay away. We don't engage, we don't pursue, but we just want nothing to do with it. Maybe every new law that's passed here, it's just like, ah, I gotta, gotta move to Florida. 
Wherever it's going, how do I just get further away from those people? Again, it's awesome to value holiness and righteousness, but we must not allow ourselves to operate out of fear or avoidance or apathy. Rather, we, we must, instead of being against those who are far away, we must come near and show compassion and love and serve. So then, who are the people we're supposed to be serving? Again, it's specifically those who are furthest from Christ. And Jesus' example, it's, it's all together, but in the story of the prodigal, of the, the Good Samaritan, it's, it's those who are furthest from Christ. And this is how Jesus tells us we're supposed to serve. He says in John 13, 35, this is how people will know we are followers of Christ if we have love for one another. And what's so cool, though, with this is it's not all the weight placed on any one of our shoulders. It's, it's not up to any one of us to live this out perfectly. It's, it's God working through all of us. Of Seeing people experience a life in Christ isn't just about hitting a home run. It's not thinking, you know, I'm going to serve them so well, I'm going to love them so well that they'll be overwhelmed and accept Christ in this moment. No, instead of you know, like swinging for the fences and trying to hit home runs, we need to focus on, on how do we join forces with the rest of the body of Christ, of what the Holy Spirit is doing, and love our neighbors, love our neighbors well together. It's, it's a team sport, not an individual one. There's something we, we do together as we all gather together and we're each a link in the chain of seeing people come to Christ, not manipulating people, not trying to move people, but simply loving them with the love of Christ. I love it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he says, you know, I planted seeds and Apollos was the one who watered them, but God was the one who made it grow. Even Paul recognized that he was just one step of people's journey to Christ. So our goal is not to just get people to make a decision for Christ in the moment, but to love them with the love of Christ as we serve them, that they would see Jesus more and more clearly with each and every step. You know, I used this illustration to go, but I want to use it again just for practical purposes. Uh, I just need a few people to stand. So Steve, could you stand for me, bud? And just kind of face the audience out that way. Rob, could you stand and just kind of point away? Who's in the back? Robert, could you stand up and, and face me, my friend? And then the back, Jonathan, could you stand up and face kind of away from me over there? And, you know, people all the way. And the idea being here that, I, I showed this before, but all, everyone is, it's not just are you in or are you out with Christ. It's not a, a zero-sum game, but it's not binary. But all of us are in a place. If I represent Christ in this position, in this illustration, coming to Christ is not about are you in or you're out, but everyone is a different proximity and posture to Christ. Some are closer to him, but turned away. Other people are further away, but pointed toward them. Everyone's a different place. So in, in this story, someone like Jonathan, who's out there, he's far away and pointed away. That's someone who's deeply involved in their sin. Sorry, Jonathan. Someone's deeply involved in their sin, who's, who's living that life of pain, has no interest in Christ, is actively walking away and living their own life. And that's a, a really dangerous place to be. A guy like Steve here, I'd say, is even almost more dangerous. He's, his deep proximity has walked close to Christ at some time, but the posture is actively walking away. Or, or Rob here, who's kind of in that middle place of walking near, but walking sideways. Or at the very back, we have Robert, who's far away, again, deep, deeply living in sin, of immorality of every kind. And so his life is a complete wreck and a disaster. Maybe he's the kind of guy we would go to the other side of the road to avoid, as his life is abhorrent to us in so many ways. Again, sorry, Robert. Um, kindest man you'll ever meet. Um, but yet look at his posture. It's pointed right towards Christ, right? He is in the most beautiful position of anyone in the room as he's looking right at Jesus and beginning to move towards him, right? Okay, you guys can take a seat. And I, I use this because someone who's pointed away 
is in a dangerous place. And so as we, as we walk for them, for someone like that, my goal isn't to just see them go cross across and, and embrace Jesus that day. But as I engage with a person like that, it's how do I share with them in such a way that they can experience some reality of the goodness of God in that interaction? And it may take thousands of those interactions in a lifetime to take a hardened heart like that for them to begin each time. And I just hope that it may be imperceptible shift as they take little tiny steps towards God with each encounter with a Christian. And so the the goal isn't, how do I get them to convert? How do I get them to say a sinner's prayer? But how do I demonstrate the life of who Christ is and the love of Christ to this person to see them by the time I'm finished with this interaction? They're a little more aware of the beauty of Jesus than they were before the conversation. Whether they're in the back of the room or whether they're standing right next to Jesus, every interaction, whether a full member of Christ or whether someone actively rejecting him, I want every interaction I have with someone for them to see a little better picture of who Jesus is. And as we seek to serve and love like Jesus, this is, should be our goal is to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us. And with each encounter, it reveals a little more of who he is as we string together a bunch of cups of cold water as people begin to see a more and more of a picture of who Christ is. For example, there could be someone who says, you know, I hate Christians, they're bigots. I tried Christianity as a kid, I'm never going back. You're all bigots, I hate you all, you're all just hypocrites, I want nothing to do with it. And then with that person, maybe it's someone who you have a conversation with them and you listen well to them. At the end of the conversation, they know Christians are still bigots, but they're like, they walk away with a strange feeling and go, but I guess that guy's a little different. Right? An imperceptible shift has happened in the back of their mind through the sake of you just listening to them and serving them and being there for them. Maybe the next week they're at the grocery store and they forget their credit card and, and a Christian standing behind them and pays 30 bucks for their groceries and they say, wow, thank you. They say, no problem, just God bless. And they, they move on and go, that was a weird encounter. Or maybe it's a barista or a waiter who you just give an extra large tip to it and, and take a minute just to learn a bit of their story and, and, and tell them that, that you're praying for them in some way or engage them in some way. And they goes, that was a weird experience. Maybe someone at work the next week has a conversation with them and they're listening to their story again, and they're talking with it, and then maybe they get together for a meal with them, and as they're doing it at the end of the thing, they ask, hey, can I pray for you? The guy's like, no, that's weird, and they walk away just going, man, Christians are weird, but as they do, they walk away going, but wow, I sure felt cared for. And time after time, as these instances kind of pile up, maybe it's they see Christians serving at their school just this past week. We're uh, now hosting, for our uh, school that we've adopted, Woodside Elementary across the way, we're hosting a kind of a tutoring program each week that we do through the summer to be able to care for them. And I, I met up with one of the moms as they were leaving, and she told me just how incredibly grateful she was that our people are, are serving and, and engaging in that way. And I mean, you can almost just see kind of a little bit of a shift. I don't know where she's at in her journey, but you can see there's a bit of a shift. And she's like, wow, there's something going on with this Jesus thing. And then maybe it's a few months later, and you meet up with that person. They're deeply hurting. They come to you because they know that you've been listening well. They want to listen. They want to hear more. And each of those is another shift as they begin to take more steps towards Jesus. Again, so often we consider this idea of evangelism as a scary word that's intimidating. And I'm not an evangelist. I'm not going to proclaim the gospel in those ways. That's not my style. But it's not just about those major things. Even more so, it's about the small steps of demonstrating the life and love of Christ to those around us. It's not about trying to get someone to cross a finish line. Or telling someone how to be saved in a moment. That's just one part of it. Most of the process is just demonstrating the reality of Christ day in and day out to those who are around us. In fact, it's often better just to serve someone for a long while before they even, they even hear the, 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 the message the gospel proclaims. So they can actually relate it back to the reality of what they've, they've seen in their lives. 
You know, a few years before he died, Billy Graham was giving an interview, um, and, and he said this, talking about how culture is changing in reaching the lost. Billy Graham, the most famous evangelist of all time, said, Back when we did these big crusades in football stadiums and arenas, he says, the Holy Spirit was really moving at that time, and people were coming to Christ as we preached the Word of God. But he says, but today I sense something different is happening. I see evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in a new way. He's moving through people where they work and through the one-on-one relationships to accomplish great things. They are demonstrating God's love to those around them, not just in words, but in deed. I love that. That's Billy Graham saying that. That something's happened where the Spirit is not just working with the giant crowds, but through the one-on-one relationships. And, and in this great book called Next Christians, um, Gabe Lyons, he has this quote, an incredible book. Uh, and he says, he's talking about how we need to be able to reach. How, the book is about how effect, ways in which Christians are effectively reaching the world today in this kind of postmodern society. He says this. He says, today's typical outsiders aren't likely to be reached through persuasive argument, but instead through first experiencing an authentic Christian. Someone who's willing to roll up his or her sleeves and restore alongside them. So together, as a collective body of Christ, we are to join in what God is doing across the whole body. As we serve and bring a cup of cold water in each instance, we serve with compassion and demonstrate the heart of Christ. And we see the value in in just getting a walk or doing a bunt or maybe just a small three-yard run and of, of of just creating curiosity in someone, of seeing them, maybe just an imperceptible shift in their eyes or a slight turn of the neck, maybe a tiny little step forward. And as those get piled upon one another, they become radical change and transformation as people experience the beauty of who Jesus is. So as we move to application, the first question is to honestly consider and ask is, who do we lack compassion for? Who do we not have compassion for? Who's far from God that we get angry about or we just want to avoid? What person or group, you know, do we get outraged when we we think about them? We need to grow in using our anger and our disgust or our outrage as being triggers for the Holy Spirit to lead us to prayer. That's my primary trigger for prayer these days is when I notice kind of anger or disgust or some outrage rising in my heart. It's like, okay, Lord, what's going on? Why is this happening? And that leads me to, okay, I need to start praying into this and praying for those people. Lord, take my heart of judgment and fill it with your heart of compassion and love and life. Next question, what does a cup of cold water look like for us today? Where is the Lord leading us to serve those around us who are furthest from Jesus. Maybe it means going and mowing a lawn. Maybe it's just listening as as they tell long, meandering stories that never seem to end. Maybe it's giving a gift card to a struggling family. Maybe it's helping out a neighbor with kids and giving them an afternoon off to go on a date or something like that. You know, not too long ago, we had neighbors that um, were struggling deeply in their marriage, and there was a a terrible circumstance, and there was abuse going on, and we used to try and just be a safe place for the kids to play, and they come over to our house all the time. We used to try to give safety even to a a mother that was in a really bad shape in the marriage, and and we were building relationships to try to love on them. And one day, things really blew up, and we're at the door, and and the the father was there, just panicked. You could tell angry, and he just, we didn't know what was going on. He just said, take them. He hands the kids to us, I'm gone. And he just leaves. No words, no understanding what happened. Obviously, massive crisis in the home. He took off. We didn't know what was going. The, the mom wasn't answering the phone. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what, what to do. We had plans. We were about to go out. We canceled our plans. And we just spent the evening caring and loving on these kids. Eventually, very, very, very late at night, the, the mother came back, apologized, took the kids, and went home. And um, 
I don't know how that story finishes, but what I love was the fact that when the father knew that life was at its crossroads, he knew because the way we had been loving him, caring for them, where did he bring the kids? He brought them to our house and they just dropped them at the door and said, I'm gone. I don't know where they've since moved away and I don't know what's gone on their life, but what I do know is that we were able to demonstrate Christ to them. And there's something within them that they recognize that those people who follow Jesus, there is something about that they are safe people in the midst of crisis of what's going on. Other times it's letting people serve beside us. One of the greatest things we do to serve others is just let them serve next to us, side by side as they see what God is doing. Invite them to help a widow fix a house or, or in some project that we're doing. It's not supposed to be exhausting, but as we pray, we open our eyes and, and hearts and we should be seeking the Lord to hear for opportunities that are arising. But we have to be praying and listening well to know what those opportunities are. You know, I love to, you know, Pastor Aaron Collier, Collier he, he came and preached here a few weeks back. And I was at his house a month or so ago at, when he was doing one of those family meals that were all, he invites all the neighborhood every week to come over to his house for a meal. It's an incredible thing. While I was there, I overheard his wife having a conversation with a brand new neighbor who was there for the first time, single woman. And she was describing, you know, uh, that, that she's been really struggling with her grass and to get it growing and it keeps dying on her. And as she was doing, I loved it. I was just listening in. The, Aaron's wife volunteered Aaron. He goes, well, Aaron can come this weekend and he'll help you with your grass and get it working, right? She totally volunteered him. He wasn't even involved in the conversation at all. But I love that her, his wife, was listening to what the need was and saying, how do we meet that need? And she's like, my husband can totally do that. What a great example. You could almost watch that woman kind of turning towards Jesus in that moment with an imperceptible shifts as she began to recognize, wow, this is a crazy amount of love that's present in this body. But those opportunities don't come up unless we're listening and praying. So what opportunities are around us? What are we listening for? And we need to be asking the Lord and I just want to finish a couple practical ways for us to do this in this, this next season. Everything around us is an opening, but we, as a church, we have a couple opportunities. Uh, soon, uh, John Columbus is going to share very soon about a way we can do this with Woodside Elementary. We're gonna, we've been partnering with them for a while of helping out the families that are nearby that are uh, struggling with uh, uh, finances. And we're going to be offering opportunity for them to get involved in helping them with school supplies for this next year. With over half their I think it's just about half their students are financially struggling and, and straight. And we want to be able to bless the school and help all the, 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 the children that are struggling with, with finances to get the supplies they need. So that'll be an opportunity. Um, another one is this past week, we were contacted by our next door neighbors here as a church, a, a preparatory school for primarily for, for students from overseas and, and, and local Asian students. And they've, uh, in fact, we had about, was it 13 or 14 of, of, of their students to show up to our youth group this past Tuesday. I think I threw a photo out there up, up there. Is that available? Is there a photo up there? It was 24, never mind, 20, 24 of the students from China, uh, at least I think most of them from Taiwan, coming out to our program. They're coming again this next Tuesday. It was so cool as they were looking at just how to engage and partner with them. But anyways, while there, the head of the program said, you know, in the fall, we have all these students coming from mainland China, an unreached nation, an unreached people group are coming. And she says, what we have a need for is some host families, people that would be willing to allow, a, to, to, to care for a, an un, a, one of these unreached Mainland Chinese students to go into their home to live with them, maybe just on the weekend, sometimes others more than that. They're like, would any would you know of anyone that would be willing to host a student? And this is incredible. We talk about the cost of, the, of getting to the unreached world of China. I mean, I lived there for five years or so, but we don't have to even go there. They literally want to come live in our home, is what they're offering, of a chance to serve those who are furthest from Jesus, kids who would never have a chance in their life to even hear the name of Jesus. Cool opportunity coming up. If you're interested, let me know and we can put you in touch. Another opportunity to grow in skills of serving one another is we've talked about the one-to-one -one training that we have coming up in the fall. A chance to be able to grow in learning how to listen, learning how to uh, care for those, of basically learning and counseling skills, of learning to be able to grow, of, of caring for people in depression or heartache or, or, or um, 
and toxic relationships, depression and codependence and, and learning each week how to care and better serve those people. It's a, it's a serious time commitment, but it will genuinely change the rest of your life and the way that you engage with others if you go through the training this fall. And it's not just about serving those that are far from Jesus as well. It's also about serving those who are near as a weary world watches the way in which we care for one another. I loved it. Uh, last week or the week before, I was you know, serving my mom, dealing with all this stuff in my dad's estate since his passing. And I've been helping her a ton, but she has a neighbor named Chris who's been helping her almost as much as me. Just amazing man, um, about my age, and he comes over and serves all the time. And, and one day we were there, and she has another neighbor who's lived with them, next to them for decades who is very anti-God, anti-Christian anyway. He's, he's always quick wit. He's kind of got a, a, just always making teasing, making jokes, cracking, cracking all kind of inappropriate jokes all the time, and making everything a joke with her. Anyways, he was there while, we, while Chris was there helping my mom, and I was there. And he's helping Chris. He finally kind of lost the, the kind of the, the wisecrack mentality. He just simply said, he goes, Chris, wh- why do you do this? And Chris said, it's what I feel I'm called to do. And that moment, you could almost see the wheels working in his head as that posture just kind of began to shift. He began to go, wow, that's different. That doesn't fit within my worldview. And I'm trusting of how the Lord is going to use that story. And so we can also serve one another, and there's a great opportunity happening literally right now for us to serve one another, people in our body. There's a lot of people in our body who are hurting, but right now there's a couple that are hurting a lot, uh, and that's the Droppelmans. If you know Ken and Lorna, one of our senior couples here that have been with us for a while and are deeply hurting, haven't been able to join us in quite a while, been in and out of the hospital a lot right now. Bodies are failing. Um, just were in the hospital again this weekend, and right now what they deeply need is, is people that can come alongside and be able to help them get to some doctor appointments and and get some other stuff. And we need a bunch of people to kind of come around as a body and to come around and serve them and love on them and some people to hang out with them. And so Shannon is kind of arranging a schedule to get through three to four times a week of getting people to pick them up, take them to the doctor and bring them back home. And other people might be able to just go hang out with them and spend some time with them. And we've had a bunch of people helping out already and so thankful for those who've been doing that. Um, but I would ask if that's something that you would be open to. How do we serve right within our own body? There's an incredible opportunity right now of people deeply in need who are there. And if that's the case, contact Shannon about that. So as we close, there are endless ways to apply this. But are we consistently seeking the Lord of how do we serve one another? How do we love one another? And so as we finish this morning, that's the question to me. What small steps is the Lord leading us to take this week? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we thank you that you showed us the way. There's nothing you ask of us that is beyond what you have already demonstrated and done. But you ask us to take the love that you've given to us and poured into the lives of those people around us. And so, Father, empower us by your Spirit to love well the people you've placed around us. To share your heart with those who are hurting. Lord, may you, by your Spirit, open our ears to listen well to the needs of people around, that we can care for people right where they're at. May you break down any mentality that it's too much, it's too big, and may we be able to celebrate the simple steps of loving well and and serving well, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we're part of a body, not on our own. We're part of a team, not an individual. Empower us, Lord, as we go out and act as your hands and feet to love those around us. Thank you, Jesus.